Welcome to the Callaway Golf Podcast, part of the Callaway Podcast Network. Here's your host, Jeff Newbarth. And welcome to the Callaway Golf Podcast, Tuesday edition. It's going to get confusing because there's three of us. We, we, we're going to test ourselves and see if we can figure out, especially with two of us with the same name. So Jeff Newbarth here, joined by Radar Golf Pro Jeff Smith and by Patrick Rogers from uh, our PGA Tour staff. Good morning, guys. Welcome to the uh, Callaway Golf Podcast, live edition. Good morning. Thanks for having us on. Uh, well, we're excited. Uh, we're going to dive in here. We want to take your questions. So wherever you're watching us, uh, leave some comments and uh, leave questions for both Patrick and Jeff. And we will try uh, our best to get all of them asked and answered by these guys. We're going to talk about the relationship between a coach and a player, uh, particularly in this challenging time where, where distance is something. How many weeks a year do you guys normally spend together uh, when we're not kind of quarantined at home? Yeah, I'll take it, Jeff. Um, yeah, we usually try to work as much as possible. Jeff's great about being on the road um, at most of the events. I would say probably two-thirds to three-fourths of the events, which makes his travel schedule uh, pretty pretty demanding with as much as I play golf. Um, but we just try to make sure that we see each other as much as we can early in the week. Um, I think the most productive work that we get is when we get together uh, away from events, whether that's him coming down to Florida or me going to Vegas. Um, I just think it's it's there you can really dive into kind of the minutia of the golf swing and my golf game, whereas um, the work at events is typically a little bit more focused in, in kind of getting into that competitive environment and building confidence and, and having some ball flight predictability. Um, but but we work together quite a bit. Um, it's been since the kind of late fall of 2017, and um, it's really changed my career. So I, I owe a lot to Jeff. And Jeff, how how have you been adjusting to trying to, you know, keep tabs on on professional golfers in this kind of strange time we're living? Well, you know, it's cool. It, you know, platforms like Zoom um, honestly make it really easy. I've got. Um, in addition to the guys I have on the PGA Tour, I have about 100 players in college right now. And so um, college players can't, you know, get to Vegas, you know, seven, eight times a year. So I've gotten really good at giving lessons on Zoom. Um, they all have the app on their phone. And so I'll do these sometimes live with them on the driving range, hitting shots, and I'm watching via Zoom and I can give them feedback. So I've you know, we've been doing this for a few years now, online lessons and stuff like that. So it doesn't seem as bit of a, a culture shock as, it, as you might think. But with my tour guys, you know, um, I, I teach them in a way with which, you know, my purpose is I'm trying to teach them to teach themselves. So we, we establish terminology. It makes it very easy to go back and forth via text. All my guys are kind of routinely sending me video of their swings. And so it's, it's pretty seamless, to be honest. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, we're, we're lucky in uh, sort of this uh, area where, where, yeah, the technology is here. I mean, 20, 25, 30 years ago. One thing, Jeff, I want to get into, and then Patrick, you as well, is, Jeff, you were, I, I'm not, I'm going to probably piss someone off because someone else is probably the first, but you were among the first people I recognized uh, out on tour who was, who was full on into TrackMan right around, what, 2010, um, and, and working on, you know, different things that we've seen. How did that sort of start? Can you kind of give us a little brief history? And then Patrick, I know that you're someone who uses the track name as well. How, how was, when did you start using it and how did it, uh, kind of change your game? So Jeff, why don't you start and then Patrick, you can take it when Jeff's done. Yeah, I think I got my first track man in, um, I say first, cause I've had 
think four, four, four now. So I think I got my first one in uh, 2011. And it came about because I had an indoor teaching um, facility in Las Vegas. And so it's kind of pointless to give golf lessons, just hitting balls into a net. I needed some type of simulator and that, you know, researching it a bit, you know, brought me across, came, I came across TrackMan and I was like, wow, I got to, I've got to see this machine. I've got to see this technology. And then when I finally got my hands on one, I started teaching with it. It was really sort of um, lifting this veil of mystery off of, off of golf instruction that, you know, especially as it relates to ball flight um, that I had been sort of operating, you know, flawlessly for the large majority of my, of my teaching career and playing, you know, even playing, and as it relates to understanding ball flight. And so that indoor facility kind of facilitated me getting a track man. And then from there, I think I had it out on tour probably around 2013 um, for the first time. And back then there was no, nobody had a track man, you know, Callaway, Titleist, the OEMs had, you know, had track man that they were using for testing and stuff like that. But you didn't see coaches and you didn't see every player walking around out there with a, with a track man like you do today. So it's, it's amazing to see how that has all evolved over the last several years. And ben Patrick, how's it changed your, uh, you know, cause you, you obviously are someone who uses it now. How's, how's it changed your, your, your game and your preparation? Yeah, I think for, for me, it, it, uh, it was a really interesting process because I had to kind of go through it um, not in the middle of my professional career, but for sure in the middle of my career, I had played, um, on a Walker Cup team, I had had um, a similar type of instruction my entire career, um, and then it was it was almost as as if TrackMan and people like Jeff, instructors like Jeff, really kind of unveiled the reality of a lot of new information. And for me, I, I'm I'm a little bit of a golf nerd, and and I'm definitely a student of the game, and always trying to learn and educate myself as best as possible. And so when I was in college, I just couldn't get enough of watching videos and reading as much as I could about why the ball flies like it does. And um, I really felt like I needed to incorporate this information into my game. And um, TrackMan was the best way to help, help me do that. I was lucky that uh, my Stanford team had one. I tried to use it as much as I could um, to really understand, um, like I said, what was making the ball curve the way that it did my whole life and, and common instruction was under the impression that you, you aimed your body where you wanted the ball to start and you swung your path along that and that you aimed your face where you wanted the ball to finish. Um, and that's kind of how a lot of people played, uh, myself included. And, and it was able to help me get, uh, you know, have a setup that, that had the face close to the path for a draw and the, and the face open to the path for a fade. Um, but there was a lot of compensation that was happening in my golf swing in order to create those shots. And TrackMan really um, provided factual, scientific information to the way the game is played. And I think it's changed the entire structure of professional golf um, for the better. Um, now I use it just mo mostly as a practice tool um, to have the information to um, to – to get my yardage straight away, for for example, something really simple um, is is really ground you know groundbreaking in in the sport. And then once you really start diving into it, face path, attack angle, dynamic loft. I mean, there's not 
really any information that you can't get from a track man. And so you can dive as deeply or, or stop as simply as you need to with the device. And I think it's, it's gosh, it's helped almost every player. All right. We're here with Jeff Smith and Patrick Rogers on the Callaway golf pod doing a little live edition. We got some questions on Twitter. So we got two from my buddy Clayton, the catalyst on Twitter. Uh, first one, uh, Patrick, why don't you take this first and Jeff, you can follow how much coaching happens between rounds during a PGA tour event. So if you're in a TV window, Patrick and Jeff, you're watching and you see like, do you guys talk between rounds and kind of go through there or what, what, what kind of is the deal or is it all early in the week and then sort of the players on his own? So Patrick, why don't you take it first? Yeah, I think it's, I think coaching and, and kind of the teamwork that's involved is important all the time. I think you certainly take a deeper dive early in the week, whether that's on, you know, fundamentals or technique um, whereas later in the week, it's usually more about some finding some sort of competitive advantage or course strategy or building confidence or, you know, answering questions just to make me more certain. Um, but for sure, we, we continue to talk as the event goes on, whether it's something simple, just about what I'm seeing in my ball flight after a round or what I was comfortable with or not comfortable with or something like the strategy of a hole that I felt like I could have done a better job at or or I need to adjust my game plan based on what we had, had discussed in preparation. Um, I, I myself try to watch a lot of golf and to constantly be learning. Um, I'll watch the golf before I play my afternoon rounds. Um, I'll watch the afternoon golf after I've finished in the morning and just try to pick up a few things um, about how the golf course is playing or how some of the best players are playing it. Um, and, and I'll usually have a pretty open line of communication with Jeff. I think, one of the things that I appreciate about working with him is he's pretty open to my feedback. It's, he's not trying to, um, you know, take just what he believes and kind of ram it down my throat. It's always been kind of a two way, two way street. Um, and that's what I've really appreciated about our relationship. And so I feel comfortable saying what I think and he feels the same. And I think that uh, it leads for, to a lot of growth for sure. And Jeff, yeah. is there a particular example from, from between a, you know, a round that you can share with us that, that like, here's where you had some impact that was kind of cool? You know, I would say between rounds, it's more of, um, it's, it's more companionship. It's more um, getting the player to, to, to believe in what they're doing, to trust what they're doing. Um, we, we, we're very purposeful for, with how we structure our time together. So for example, you know, I never want to be a reactive coach that's kind of chasing things because I don't think the player will continuously improve and there's not a lot of growth that can happen from that. So we look at the, the big bucket um, things that we're going after. So we will set goals at the beginning of the season and each of my players will kind of send me their goals. And, and a lot of it is driven around stats and data and past performance. And so we will identify sort of big bucket, big conceptual things that we want to work on. And so that will um, sort of set the foundation for any kind of technical training that we're going to do. And so we will start with how we even structure our week. So Mondays are generally our technical days. So if we, if we're working on the swing, um, then we're doing a lot of drills and you know video work and you know looking at data and that kind of stuff Tuesday becomes more about getting a feel for the golf course so we're out there playing practice rounds uh, doing some you know maybe some minor refinement technical work um, it'll be more competitive skill-based stuff using track man or, or putting drills and that kind of stuff 
Wednesday is usually turn it off and kind of get into game mode just a little bit because we're generally always playing a, a pro-am that's either nine or 18 holes. And so, again, that is a, that is a good um, precursor for getting a, a grasp on the golf course again. It's getting a little bit closer to tournament conditions, so you're getting a better feel for how firm the greens are, what kind of wind we're going to be looking at that week, how's the rough, and that kind of thing. And then by the end of Wednesday, you know, we'll generally, after the program, maybe hit some balls, get just continuing to build reps on the fields that we're working on. But that's when I kind of try to step back and get out of the way because I want these guys to be very reactive in competition. I don't want them thinking a whole lot. And the thing about it is, is we know that we're steadily kind of chipping away at changing the technique. It isn't going to happen overnight. So therefore, you've got to have a certain time during the week where you turn that off and you allow them to just get repetition and feel for what they have at that moment. Um, so, for example, I would generally always stay until at least through Thursday, and that's because I like to watch my players play. So I will go out and walk holes. I'll make notes. I'll just look at their decision-making process, their execution process, and then I'll kind of file that away for the next week. I don't meet them after the round and be like, hey, why did you hit this shot on this hole? <laughs> and, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. It, you know, they, they kind of do that. You know, they'll kind of text me after the fact and go, yeah, I made a mess of that hole or I hit the ball great. No, they'll, they'll give me feedback. But Thursday through Sunday, I kind of step back, get out of the way and let them do their thing. And then we pick it up the next, the following week and just keep building. See, I think it'd be cool if, you know, Patrick could call like a 20 second timeout at some point and bring you out there. Or you could call it, Jeff. You could be like, what the heck are you doing? Like, you see some of these coaches get all fired up or, you know, you see like the Greg Popoviches who, you know, are yelling and screaming sometimes or laughing with the players. I don't know, Patrick. I think it'd be kind of fun to, to be able to. Yeah, I definitely to, think to kind of do um, from, a, from a coach's and a player's perspective, I can think yeah. of many times where, I, where uh, a 20 second timeout would have been required. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure, for sure. Hey, we got a, another. Yeah, we got another question uh, on Facebook from Sean Subden. Uh, I'll start with you on this one, Patrick. How much testing goes into the decision to change newer equipment each year? Uh, you know, specifically, let's talk about a driver. Yeah, I think testing is a, a really critical part of the process of playing high-level professional golf. I think um, you know the kind of the the luxury and the the curse at the same time is that. Um, you know, Callaway specifically, but most equipment companies come out with a, um, a, a new product that oftentimes is better each and every year, whether that be a driver or a fairway wood set or some irons or a wedge um, or even a putter. Um, and so the, the, the professional game is so competitive that you need to have that advantage. And so to not test and not address, you know, the potential advantages you can gain with new equipment, you're doing yourself a disservice. But at the same time, the testing process is quite long, quite rigorous. There's, especially in, in today's equipment, there's so many options um, that that uh, we have the capability to kind of after a few swings, swing ourselves into to hitting almost each and every option relatively well. And so the the process of testing on the range to get the right numbers, then going on the golf course to see how the golf club um, flies under different conditions, then going and, sim and, and trying to simulate competition to see how it reacts when you have a little more adrenaline, um, then kind of repeating that cycle based on the feedback. Um, it, it's quite a long process. And so 
Um, we're fortunate that we have product that's, that's very easy to transition into at, at Callaway. Um, but at the same time, you want to, to utilize the, um, the golf clubs to your advantage. And, and each and every year, they, they continue to make golf clubs that are easier to hit. The drivers are, are a little bit faster, a little bit more forgiving. Um, and so you want to make sure that, that you have what's best for you in the back. Jeff, when, when you see students go through this testing process, do you ever kind of get nervous? Because especially if someone's coming off, you know, really, really, you know, great year, or particularly <laughs> a lot of players, uh, you know, say to us that the fairway woods are some of the most challenging to change because like you find a good three wood, you just kind of don't want to get out of the bag. Do you ever get nervous when, when these guys do it? And then how do you sort of, or do your players get nervous? And how are you the calming force to be like, hey, this thing's actually faster and faster is going to mean further, which means shorter irons and, and, and less, you know, distances to approach Greenswood. How, how do you handle that? Yeah, I would say I'm probably definitely the, the, uh, the calming, calming influence. Try to right. mitigate change if, if possible. Um, cause, because these guys are always looking for some, some, the next competitive edge. Give me another yard. Give me two yards. Give me a two miles an hour ball speed. And at the end of the day, I'm trying to put together a, a puzzle that at the end of the day they, they play their best golf with. And yeah, I've run into that. Like I've had some guys like Patrick right before the break was just in the middle of the best stretch of driving the ball I've seen from him since we started working together, which is, you know, a couple of years now. And, and uh, you know, we, we obviously did some testing and we were like, wow, you know what the stuff, the new stuff is really, really good, but gosh, do we, do we make a change right now in the, in the stretch of events? Because, our process is we really like to do it away from the tournament um, because these guys are so highly adaptable as athletes. You could literally hand them a ladies driver and he could hit it straight after about 10 swings. And so the, how you go about the testing process is probably the most important thing. I don't want them to make more than two or three driver swings in a row then I want them to hit an iron because I don't want them to have the chance to adapt their swing to that equipment. And so when you do it in that format, it does take quite a while because like he said, we've got to learn to hit it straight on the range. Then we've got to learn to do it in, you know, in a practice round. Then we've got to learn to do it in competition. And there's going to be tweaks and changes throughout that whole process. Yeah, and Patrick, I really think the key to the great driving, I was going to bring this up later, but we'll just jump into it now, was that work you did with Amanda Balionis and Michelle, we and myself and our team out in uh, out at the Amex. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you probably hit it to the other end of the range where other people were were hitting there, but you put on a stripe show there. Amanda, not quite so much. <laughs> it's, uh, I may not be the best instructor, but it is interesting when you, uh, when you have to explain how you do something, how it becomes a little bit more clear to you. It's kind of funny how that works. Yeah, so this um, is a yeah, piece of content. I don't know if I have a future in, in instruction. Yeah, so Jeff, you'll have to you'll get a kick out of this as a piece of content. We haven't released it yet. We're we're kind of you know saving some stuff, but it's where where Patrick was forced to give Amanda a lesson with Michelle there to sort of translate because Amanda wanted some Stanford to Stanford, uh, you know, help to to kind of get her squared away. And I think at one point we asked her to aim a, a few feet to the right. She went like forty yards. So she clearly was not a very good student. Uh, I think you're you're underselling your ability as teaching a little better. I've got another question from Ann Rogerson on Facebook. What is your reaction to the new pro golf schedule this week? So what we learned is that the Open Championship will be canceled. We will have the Masters in November. We have slated for the PGA in uh, August. We have the U.S. Open staying at Wingfoot for now in September and potential return to golf at the Memorial. Uh, a lot of information coming out yesterday and what would have been Masters week. Um, what, what's your reaction to it, Patrick? 
Yeah, I think it honestly hearing the new schedule filled me with a lot of hope. I think especially at a time where the the virus and the disease is really kind of taking over America and it's a really, really trying time for so many families and so many people really around the whole United States. Um, it's going to be a tough stretch, but I, I feel like kind of seeing hopefully some light at the end of the tunnel with, with the return of sports and the return of golf specifically filled me with, with some hope and something to look forward to and get ready for. So I hope that uh, we're able to kind of come together and beat this virus so that we can get back out and play and compete. That's obviously the best case scenario. Um, but it's, it's cool to see um, the, the, the tour and the major championships really working together to kind of put their heads together to find a schedule that works. That's, best for each event and, and best for, for us, the players. And um, I mean, I love competing. I, I love to play. I love playing events. This is always what I've dreamt about doing is playing on the PGA tour and, and I get to do it. And, and when that's taken away from you, you, um, you really realize how much you love it. Um, it's been incredibly difficult, not, not having competition. I, I faced something similar last year when I was out for four months with a wrist injury. Um, and, and I, I just can't wait to get back and compete. So obviously priority number one is to take care of, of the, the public health in, in our country and around the world. But, um, you know, once, once we get through that, I, I can't wait to go out and tee it up against the best players in the world. So I'm, I'm just incredibly hopeful that we can get back out that soon. And, and when we do, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play quite a bit to, uh, to kind of soak up being able to play competitive golf again. Yeah, and I think for, you know, for amateurs, um, you know, there's a lot of times where we take golf for granted, right? Where it's like, you know, your buddies will call you and be like, Hey, you know, blow out of work on a Friday afternoon, a little bit early. And let's, let's tee off at three o'clock, you know, especially here we in San Diego, we get light till, you know, seven, seven thirty during the summers. And you're like, Oh, I'd love to do that. But I got other things to do. Now it's like, you know, literally like the second I'm allowed to go play golf, that's, that's all I'm going to be doing. Well, I guess I'm going to say, I'm going to work my complete obligations to Callaway golf and in my free time, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be playing golf. All right. We got some more questions. David Jimenez. Uh, I'll start with you on this one, Jeff. Would you ever have a player adjust a setting on a club for a particular course? So meaning instead of, you know, saying I'm going to take out the the two iron and, and add the five wood to get higher loft, would you ever just have a player tinker with whether a hybrid or an iron, uh, sorry, a hybrid or wood make adjustments like we amateurs tend to do a lot uh, for a particular golf course? Or do you like them in the same thing and adjust the strategy? No, I think most of my guys build a 15 or 16 club uh, set up in their bag that they'll have a rotation mm-hmm. um, just depending upon um, you know the firmness of the golf course uh, rough how high that'll be um, some of these guys will alternate between two iron hybrid two iron uh, five wood that kind of thing so you know they'll they all generally build a, a you know a 15 or 16 club bag and then they'll make those decisions you know based on you know practice rounds and stuff and, and Patrick if of course like like Riviera for instance like, do you, do you sit there and think, okay, I need this on 10 or I need this on a, you know, certain courses that have par threes that are kind of, of, of different lengths, or if you're playing overseas, you know, where it's going to be firm, fast and windy, are those the, the challenges in, in making up your, your set out of the 15 or 16 club rotation? Yeah, I think for me, and maybe the most common thing amongst professionals is to change their, their wedge makeup, um, to have a different bounce and leading edge conditions for different conditions of the golf course. You know, there's, there's some weeks where, you know, the ground is soft, the rough is thick, the bunkers have a lot of sand in them, and, and it's really advantageous to have that extra bit of bounce um, to help you hit a few short game shots. And there's some weeks where that really does you a disservice. And so 
I think the, the most common change other than uh, maybe the, the two iron five wood setup um, is, is kind of bounce conditions in the wedges. Um, and I, I think week to week, we're lucky that we play a pretty consistent playing condition every week on tour, but you're for sure going to play in a lot of different climates, um, in a lot of different weather conditions throughout the year. So um, changing the bounce on the wedge can be a real advantage. How often um, we have a series every Wednesday, Wedgeducation, uh, that Roger Cleveland helped us produce. Wesley Bryan was our star in it uh, uh, for this year. And we're on week three that will be dropping tomorrow on all our Callaway social channels. And one of the questions, I think it's in week five, is Roger asked Wesley, how often do you change your highest lofted wedge? Uh, because they're working on a, on a spinning shot. And obviously, you know, having a fresh wedge will, will help you, you spin the ball. How often do you change your highest lofted wedge? What is your highest lofted wedge, I guess, first of all? And how often do you change it? Yeah, I have a 61 degree lob wedge, just that extra degree, I guess, for a little extra dynamic loft, a little, a little extra height around the greens. Um, and the real key to spin is friction. Um, and so I, I try to maximize that as much as I can. I'm lucky I'm a spoiled tour player to be with Callaway <laughs> and to have access to, you know, new, new equipment almost as much as I need it. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to change, um, change wedges maybe every two, three, four events probably four events at the most um, because there's a little bit of a process. You don't want to put a brand new wedge in every week. The, the grind that I have on the back of my wedge is a custom grind that, that the guys on the truck do incredibly accurately, but it, it does take, you know, maybe a day or two getting used to. So um, you don't want to be changing every week, but at the same time, you always want to have that advantage of friction because I mean, the, with the firmness of the greens, the, the way the lies are so tight around the greens, the pins being tucked, a lot of times put on slopes, you really need that spin around the greens to, to kind of maximize your ability to get the ball up and down. And so having a fresh wedge, there's nothing that's, uh, there's nothing that can beat that. And Jeff, I know you work with, uh, you know, mostly elite amateurs of the amateurs that are in your stable. How often do you recommend, uh, let's just say asking for a friend, people who try to play once a week, how often do you recommend that they change their wedges? You know, the, the answer to that question is really uh, centered around their practice habits. Um, I don't think amateurs play enough golf to, to really wear down um, wedges mm -hmm. like tour players do. Um, so, you know, we've got some members at our club who are just grinders who are always around the short, short game area. And, you know, a lot of amateurs only really only chip with a 60. So their 60 gets a mm -hmm. lot of wear and tear. So in that case, if you're pretty active, I would say you probably would change it a minimum of twice a year. Um, if you okay. can do it more than that, great. But I would say probably at least twice a year changing out your 60. All right. Well, you know what? All right. See you guys. You're out. You're out. You, you at least need to have some sort of ceremony to get the clubs out of the bag. I'm sure they were I think nice I just did. Times. Now, I think if, I just did. If you, know <laughs> if you know Anthony personally, you probably want to change out your wedges about four or five times a year because he makes them. Just for the artwork. Some sick designs. That's why. I, that's why I change wedges. I get a new idea, yeah. and I just fire off a text to him, and bang, here comes a new wedge. Yeah, of course. We're talking about Anthony Toronto. If you don't follow him on social media, particularly Instagram, you are missing out. He does some great work. All right. Next question from Blake Byrne. Uh, what swing thoughts? What is your well? What swing thoughts, if any, do you have on drives? I'm going to hope you have swing thoughts on drives. I'm not going to. I'm going to pretty much guarantee that you didn't get to where you are without swing thoughts. But specifically, Patrick. 
Um, two situations I like to talk to tour pros about. One is kind of the, hey, this is a, a wide open par five and I just want to get there in two and just bomb this thing as far as I can. And then the second would be, let's say you're at the 18th hole. I don't know if you would hit a driver at, at TPC Sawgrass or if you try to cut a three, um, but a pressure situation where you've got to hit that fairway because there's nowhere to miss left or right. Talk me through the, the different swing thoughts of maybe two different driver shots. And then Jeff, you can kind of, after he answers, kind of translate a little bit and help help us amateurs get better. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, in terms of a swing thought, um, I've, Jeff and I have been working with a similar swing thought, especially with driver, really since we started a few years ago. Um, and so for me, under the gun, I just really have to remind myself of those. Um, the first one is getting depth to the hand path early. So that just requires me to, instead of letting my hands drift up and away, um, really rotate my chest early and, and slow down a little bit to get my takeaway in alignment that kind of sets up the chain reaction and the rest of my swing. Um, if we're talking specifically to the, the two different drives, one that's mm -hmm. a kind of a high bomb that's really freed up and one, the, the other one would, I would call a fairway finder that I go to quite often um, in, in a pressure situation or a hole that's just a little bit narrow where I need to find the fairway. The way that I, I change those uh, ball flights around is simply with setup. So the high bomb, I'm, I'm going to aim a little more square, maybe even my feet slightly to the right. The ball is going to be teed really high and, and forward in my stance, almost off my left foot or even in front of my left foot to get that attack angle really high. Um, and I'm just trying to feel like a soft transition from the top because a lot of times when you're trying to, to bomb one, you're going to try to rip it from the top to create speed but I want speed at the bottom. I want, um, and so I don't want, I don't want to, uh, to really kind of, um, kind of lose my tempo and my rhythm in, in transition just cause I'm trying to hit it hard. And so as long as I'm kind of soft in my transition, I, I have a lot of speed. Um, I'm able to kind of rip it. Whereas the, the low shot, the, uh, I'm still going to play it relatively far forward, but I'm going to tee it down my feet and my body lines are going to be aimed much further left. I'm going to have kind of the appearance that I'm much more on top of the shot. And it's oftentimes going to be a lower launch and a little left to right ball flight. Um, and so the, the key there still is to swing within rhythm. Um, I think that's, that's one of the biggest things for me in my golf swing. I have a, a tendency to hang on my right foot and over rotate early in the downswing. And so if I can just soften that transition and, and kind of let my, my hands and arms, fall into position a little bit better. Um, I, I swing much better, especially under pressure. Jeff, anything there that uh, amateurs at home can, can take away? Yeah. I mean, you know, amateurs probably aren't hitting fairway finders, teed down fairway finders like, like Patrick is, but. I'm uh, trying every shot. I just don't <laughs> find the fairway. <laughs> my, my biggest advice to amateurs would be to, to stay with the, the, the bomb on just about every hole because distance is going to impact their game more than, more than a tour players is um, because they tour players are all hitting it far, but that that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see. We're out here watching pro-ams, you know, playing pro-ams and these guys are hitting three woods off of tees just because they think I can hit it in the fairway. And it's like, right. they're no more accurate with their three wood than they are with their driver. And they're giving up 30 yards off the tee. So I would say that most amateurs shouldn't be dropping back to three wood or a shorter length club. They should be hitting their driver on virtually every hole, but they can learn to hit multiple shots with it. And that's, that's the beauty. And, and Patrick's very aggressive as a, with, with the driver. 
it's really hard to get him to hit something less than driver. And, and I like that a lot. And because of that, we've tried to develop two different shots. Um, the T down one has got a much tighter dispersion. Um, and, you know, it's still super fast. So we don't really give up any ball speed when, when he's hitting that shot. Um, we fit the driver to where it's not super spinning when we're hitting that kind of shot. So um, his high bomb is super low spin and his fairway finder is about, uh, you know, on the lower to medium side spin. So we still get good distance out of both of those shots without giving up, uh, giving up too much. But the amateurs need to just tee it up and send it. Yeah, we have a, a video on CowboyGolf.com right now that we did with Phil uh, on the Tuesday of the players, kind of before everything shut down. And he showed us with um, Top Tracer how to hit uh, the bomb and, and then his fairway finder. He actually uses two different tees. So he said, if you want to know which drive I'm going to hit, he goes, I have a really long black tee. When you see that one, he goes, I'm going to hit bombs. He goes, when I pull out the whiter one that's a little bit shorter, he goes, that's, that's the one I'm trying to hit, but a little more of a cut, he said, as opposed to where his bomb when he was trying to draw it for us, particularly with the hole we were on. But it's pretty cool if you want to check that out on our social channels. It's about two minutes of Phil being Phil, kind of uh, telling you kind of what he's doing. And then you get to see all the numbers on it with the tracer. You know, Patrick, you're, you're obviously length on, on tour, like, but the drive is certainly not one of uh, your issues because you're, you're among the longest hitters on tour when what type of advantage do you feel like are there certain courses where you walk in there almost with like like a little more uh, I don't want to say swagger because that's not fair but like a little more like like confidence because you know a course like Tory, you know here that's just about a mile up the road for me so many players when they get to that south course are like well I can't win here because I can't hit it far enough is that something that's in your head as, as, as you think it's a distinct advantage you have yeah I think it, distance is a massive advantage and there's really no way of getting around it um I mean, I, the way that I look at it is being able to hit the ball far, it doesn't guarantee you anything, but it certainly raises your ceiling for potential of, of how, how well you can play. And so I personally don't feel like there's an event that I cannot win at, um, whereas maybe some of the shorter hitters will avoid some places because the golf course just doesn't suit their game and it puts them at such a distinct disadvantage. Whereas I feel like if I play well, I can compete at each and every week, every golf course, I think a, a lot of um, there, there's a lot of talk that, that maybe some of the shorter, tighter golf courses aren't great for long hitters, but I, I sort of look at it almost the opposite. Whereas where, where some guys have to hit their driver, which has a greater dispersion, even for, for uh, some of the shorter hitters, I can hit a, a long iron or a hybrid in, into a similar spot. And I think the, the amount of spin and the loft that's on those clubs compared to a driver gives me a huge advantage that I can, hit to the same spot with a, with less club that I hit, hit effectively straighter and then have a shorter iron into the green because of speed. So there's really nowhere that speed is, is a massive disadvantage. And, and like I said, especially over the course of the year, as much as we play on the PGA Tour, um, it really raises your ceiling for, for how well you can play. Um, and so I, I, I'm always trying to, to continue to develop speed whether it's in the gym or, or with um just having a really solid foundation of swing mechanics um and and the thing that i've appreciated about working with jeff is he has such a solid kind of baseline understanding of what creates speed um and how to develop it over time and so it's it's um the way that my brain works it, our partnerships worked really well for kind of having a long-term plan for how i want to see my career going forward Nice. All right, Jeff, I'm going to get you on this question. This is from Nick. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. What is the best way to train a hand dominant player to be more efficient at the bottom of the swing? Um, 
that's a pretty broad, uh, broad question. When you, when you say hand dominant swing, I think it's important to understand that the hands play a, a massive role in the golf swing. Um, when you break down club head speed and you break that down by body contribution. So by the joints. And that's one of the things that we do when we measure players in 3d, is that we can basically determine what percent of club head speed is being contributed by a body segment. And roughly 70% of the club head speed comes from the hands, the contribution of the hands. So I would say at the end of the day, everyone is a hand dominant player. Um, what that person is probably talking about more like is more along the lines of they have an open club face somewhere in their swing and they're having to stall their body to, to sort of line this thing up and give themselves time to, to kind of square the club face. So to, to answer his question, I would be looking more at early transition. What the club is doing, is it moving steeply in transition or is it moving shallower in transition? And I would be looking at the corresponding club face alignment. Is the face twisted open? Is the face squaring or closing in early transition? And that's going to largely dictate how the golfer moves their body or uses their body in the rest of the swing. Nice. That, was, that, that made a lot more sense than where, I, uh, where that could have gone. All right, Patrick, one last question. We'll let you guys get out of here from uh, Parrot Red. Uh, what is one shot? They always ask these questions and it's like, no, no one wants to talk about this stuff, but we'll do it anyway. What is one shot from your past of which you'd like to have a mulligan or, or that 20 second timeout before you hit it? I'd like to have a mulligan, man, break, stirring up some, some bad memories. I, uh, I know. How about one shot you'd love to hit again? <laughs> I don't, I don't have a, a, a ton of regrets in my professional career. Um, but Gosh, one of the first any that come to mind. Um, I had a one-shot lead at the John Deere Classic. I ended up finishing second to Bryson DeChambeau, and I hit a, I hit a driver trying to hit a low draw off the tee on 17 that I hit a, a pull hook into the woods that I'd maybe like to have back. Um, you don't want to have back. But, uh, gosh, it's, it's a tough spot to live from as a professional golfer with uh, – I, I just try to really let the good ones sink in and, and kind of take the bad ones in stride. So I'm, it's not my favorite question. Yeah, really. It's funny. We get that question almost every time to players. And, and what's always amazing to me is even though everyone always kind of starts off the same way, like they always have that shot. Like there's always something that you can remember. And then like 10 minutes later, another one will come in, another one will come in. So uh, I don't want to leave you guys on that one. It's kind of um, like, like poker. So I've got a background in playing professional poker. If you ask me all of the millions of hands that I've won, I couldn't tell right. you any of the memorable ones, but I can tell you all the bad beats. I can exactly. tell you when I took the worst beats, and, and, and those are the ones that sting and stick in your mind. So I kind of get where that question's coming from a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it makes – honestly, it makes us feel better as, as amateur golfers because um, you know, we have lots of shots we'd love to do over and lots of shots we'd love to forget that are a lot more memorable – than uh, some of the good ones that we pulled off. Yeah, I mean, you, you hit enough in competition, you're going to see the whole gamut of shots. I've hit plenty of, you know, thin, low worm burners or, or shots that are, you know, high sky balls or slices and, and hooks. So you, you play enough golf, the game will get the best of you over time. But I, I try to just remember the really good ones. Yeah, the only person it was really easy to ask that question to was Kevin Na when we had him on the podcast about a week ago. It was like, oh, it's easy. The 16 I made of Valero. <laughs> but it wasn't just one shot. <laughs> 
It was an entire hole. Well, Jeff and Patrick, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us here in the Cowboy Golf Podcast. Um, Jeff, I want to make sure that people can interact with you, follow you, uh, because you are a great follow on social media. Can you tell people the handle uh, they can follow you on Instagram and Twitter and, of course, uh, the website? Yeah, I'm, I'm at Radar Golf Pro on both Instagram and Twitter. And um, I also have um, a golf instructional a website called Course Kings, and that's coursekings.com. And if you haven't spent some time there, dive on in there. It's really, really cool. Look, in this time where a lot of us are stuck around uh, not being able to do a whole lot, uh, as hopefully we, we get closer and closer to, you know, curing this virus and, and, and be able to kind of return to what things were before, golf instruction is safe. You can just sit at your computer, deep dive, and, and go on in there. Patrick, where can people uh, follow your, your travels and stuff on, uh, on social media? Yeah, Instagram and Twitter are what I use. P. Rogers Golf is my handle. Um, definitely trying to be a little more active during this time just to, um, you know, just to have some fun and, and kind of fill the void that, uh, that is missing with, with sports being gone. It's such a strange time, but um, there's definitely a lot to learn on Course Kings. I'm enjoying following some of the other players and seeing some of the creative content that everyone's doing. Um, but I'm just going to try to keep making progress and, and see if uh, some of the people that, that follow me have a chance to see what I do on a day-to-day basis to try to try to be a good golf golfer in this crazy game. Yeah, for sure. Well, we appreciate both of you guys' time. For the Callaway Golf Podcast, we have a really busy week. You know, this would have been a Masters week, so we thought we'd kind of ramp up and have extra uh, content. If you didn't watch or listen to the podcast with Eric Van Royen yesterday, you definitely want to check that one out. Uh, he played a little Guns N' Roses, uh, played some Creed, played some ACDC. Um, a lot of less golf talk than we did today. A little less technical, a little more guitar talk, so that's pretty good. And then tomorrow on Wednesday, uh, audio-only special. We had Tom Watson on, and I thought it was appropriate Masters Week to uh, talk to one of the great champions of the game. And what's interesting is even now, um, his body says he still gets ready. As soon as he knows it's April, his body's like, all right, maybe I should be working on hitting a draw for 13 off the tee and then trying to be able to hit shots at 11 because we did a, a shoot with him a couple of years ago and he walked us through before his last Masters. He sits on the range and he plays every hole at Augusta on the range trying to hit every single shot and then goes over to the short game area. It was just so, so cool. So uh, we spent about an hour with Tom Watson. So you want to check that out. And then on Thursday at 2 o'clock, uh, Pacific time, five o'clock Eastern. See, Jeff, we finally got one that moved to the little bit later on the West Coast for us. Uh, I'll be joined by Jim Furick, Henrik Stenson, who just had a birthday earlier this week, uh, Mark Leishman, and former Masters champion Danny Willett. So uh, we're going to have the four of them on, and we will take any questions you guys have. So if you have questions for them, uh, hit us up at CallawayGolf.com or Callaway Golf in the community, uh, CallawayGolf.com slash community, or on our social channels, and send some questions in early for those guys. And then we'll just keep rolling. As long as we have uh, weeks away from golf, we'll just get our tour team and uh, start chatting. So, again, Jeff and Patrick, thank you guys so much for joining us. And we'll see you either tomorrow with the Tom Watson one or Thursday with uh, those four great players I just mentioned on the Callaway Golf Podcast.